Hello, Charlie Gladstone here. Welcome to episode 10 of my Mavericks podcast. Today is my first that focuses on science. And um, as many of you will know uh, that have listened before, I've been generally talking to people who are working in creative industries. But although I'm not really a scientist myself, I thought it'd be interesting to talk to a scientific maverick. I suppose that the definition of a maverick is someone who's doing something that no one else has done. And Professor Gavin Screeton, who I'm talking to today, is very much in that mould. Gavin is an old friend of mine and is the Dean of the Faculty of Medicine at Imperial College in London. In fact, as you'll find out, he's soon to move on to become the senior um, person at the medical department at the University of Oxford. Um, Gavin is working particularly on trying to eliminate dengue fever, uh, which is a massive global problem, and um, he'll talk about that. But we'll also talk a bit about the other things that interest him. I hope that this isn't too scientific. Gavin said afterwards that maybe he'd been a bit too scientific, but I don't actually think he has because I understood um, everything he was saying and I am not very good at this science stuff. Anyway, um, the conversation took place in early August in my garden on a particularly lovely afternoon. And there is a bit of background noise, but I hope you'll forgive that. If you can imagine us sitting in a couple of really comfortable, very old deck chairs, drinking a bottle of water, then the scene is set. Um, So I think we'll get on with Gavin. Uh, Thanks very much indeed for listening. Please uh, don't forget to subscribe if you possibly can and to rate this podcast. It would be really helpful to me. Um, Thank you very, very much to um, Jim Friend, who's edited this again. And um, unlike most podcasts, we don't have any sponsors, of course. Um, But if we did have sponsors, they would be um, our festival, The Good Life Experience, and also um, the Peddler's Vintage Marketplace, which uh, is another business that I started. Uh, Have a look at both of those. Anyway, without further ado, here is Professor Gavin Spreeton. Your job title at the moment is Senior Faculty Member of Medicine at Imperial College, is it? So I'm I'm a Professor of Medicine and and Head of the... um the, the medical school that's in Imperial, that's right. And, and you've just signed a contract to move uh, to be to the head of Oxford University? To be the head of medicine in Oxford, that's right, the division of medicine. Amazing. And your, your research is into dengue fever at the moment. Will you be able to take that with you? Uh, yes. I mean, research is very dependent upon a group of people that uh, work with you. And, and I think uh, uh, many of them are excited about the potential move to Oxford and some of them actually followed me from Oxford to, to, Imperial, to Imperial 12 years ago. And so talk, talk me through dengue fever and, and just, I mean, it's, it's obviously a massive um, problem globally, but it, it, it's never really been particularly in the news, I don't think, has it? It, it, okay, it does occasionally get into the news. In fact, it, it, uh, it, it's been, um, it's disrupted um, sporting events in, in the past, but generally it's a very unusual in the UK. There's probably 500 to, to 1,000 cases a year. Um, and it's a disease. Uh, it's, a, it's a virus disease. It's transmitted by a mosquito. And it's a disease, really, which occurs, obviously, where the mosquito flies, which is in tropical and subtropical countries. So people who cut, uh, get it in the UK will be travellers who've returned from such areas. So 
very large numbers of cases in, in places like Thailand, Vietnam, in Southeast Asia, um, and in South America. Uh, and it can spread um, north and south. So in the, in the southern states of the United States, it, it, it's uh, seen um, to a small degree, and also in, in northern um, Australia. So how, so, I mean, how many people uh, have, have, would have it at any given time globally? Oh, it's completely enormous. There's um, estimated to be just under 400 million cases a year. And, and does, what, what are the symptoms? What does it do to people? Well, generally, it's generally speaking a fairly mild disease. So of those 400 million infections, around uh, a quarter of them lead to a symptomatic disease. And that's usually fairly mild, called dengue fever, which is, I mean, it's not something you would want to get. It's a, um, it's a fever illness, um, joint pains, muscle pains, maybe a rash. Self-limiting in, 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 in most cases, and then the, the, the people will get better. Well, self-limiting, you mean what? It just, it it just gets better. Okay. So, it'll, it, it, you know, some of it will be quite mild and, 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 and not diagnosed or felt to be a, a childhood fever type illness. But there's a few cases, perhaps 1% to 5%, that can become much more severe and lead to an illness called dengue hemorrhagic fever, um, which can be fatal. So around 20% of those cases, if they weren't expertly treated in hospital, would die. And it's a very... So big... just let me do the maths. Is that 400,000 or 4 million uh, Gosh, Charlie, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I can tell you there's around... Um, there's estimated to be around 50,000 deaths a year from dengue, but the major, the real major issue with it is that it occurs in, a, in, in an epidemic fashion and can literally polax healthcare systems with many thousands of cases uh, attending hospital in, in, in cities at the same time. Okay. So there are these, so it, it's not only a great deal of it, it occurs it absolutely overwhelms healthcare systems in, in affected countries. So they can deal with it, but they, I mean, they can, they can deal with it as it were on an individual basis, but if 5,000 people... Of, the pressure of, of, of the epidemics is, is extreme. And, and, there's the, and, and you know, 50,000 deaths a year is not up in malaria and TB territory, but it's still a significant healthcare burden. And how long have you been working on trying to work, find a cure for it? So... I started on working on dengue uh, in, in about 2000 and my route into dengue was, was quite an interesting one because I, I had a PhD student, a, a mature PhD student um, in the lab at the time who had worked on dengue in Thailand before she came to Oxford to do her um, PhD, Jusithip uh, Monkel Sapaya, who still works very closely with me. In, uh, at Imperial and she told me about dengue and um, some of the interesting things about it and, and there is something very very interesting which we haven't discussed about dengue um, and that is um, that there are four different viruses in dengue it's not just a single virus there are four different and very different viruses which which actually differ from each other by 25 to 30 percent which is a very big difference for a virus and it's so different that actually if you get infected with one of those viruses it doesn't protect you from being infected a second time 
by one of the other three viruses oh, wow. that you've not been infected with. But the really interesting thing which drew me into this field was the observation that the people who tend to get very sick and develop dengue hemorrhagic fever are those that are um, suffering a second or subsequent infection and not the first time round. So that tells you something really quite interesting about the immunology of, of dengue virus, which is that having seen it once, your immunological memory, the memory to that first one, actually makes the reaction to the second time round even worse. And that's, is that incredibly rare with... Um, dengue is pretty unique in, the, in, that, in that regard. Normally speaking, when you've had a, a previous infection, the, the immunity to that previous infection would either be useless or it would have some partial effect. Uh, be partially useful when something else comes along, but not sort of actively okay. detrimental. So, so was it that was it that particular complexity that drew you to it? I mean, I know that you're you know you 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 know you're a man who enjoys a really <laughs> rigorous challenge. I mean, was it was it the fact that it was particularly complicated that led you academically or intellectually into it? Well, that was it. That was that was it. How could the immune system in this in this case of dengue actually make the situation worse? Yes. rather than, as I said, either being partially helpful or, or just useless. So it was that combined with, the, um, combined with the scale of the problem and also the, the, the urgent need for a vaccine against dengue that, that brought me into it. And I, and I still find that fascinating. And, and, and so you've been working on it for on and off, I mean, obviously not entirely full-time, for 17 years. Um, do you think you're going to crack it? I think we've I think we've made quite a lot of progress um, with dengue. I think we've got a a better idea of um, why people get more sick that second time they have the virus. Um, and the other very interesting thing we've we've recently been doing is um, is trying to understand the antibodies that you make uh, when you're when you've been infected with um, with dengue because obviously if you you want to try and work out which ones are the good antibodies because those are the sorts of things that a good vaccine would want to generate. And you also want to understand perhaps what are the bad antibodies, what are the things that can actually make the disease worse the second time round. And I think we've got a much better idea of that. And um, we've actually generated some extremely potent uh, antibodies uh, against dengue which can neutralise all of the different viruses, not just one, but all four. Wow, so your idea, as it were, is to find something that you can immunise people with before they get it or when they've got it. I mean, like the flu, is it like the flu jab or is it like a, 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 a cure? So we've potentially got both because we have um, these antibodies which can either be given, let's imagine, to a traveller to prevent them from getting dengue, yeah or potentially could be given to an early case of dengue to actually get hold of the infection. But if you then look back at the mirror image, as it were, of an antibody, which is what it binds on a virus, it tells you how you might want to make a new vaccine. Okay. So we're, we're sort of looking at it from two angles, one of which is 
a so-called therapeutic antibody. And the other one is what, what, what some people call in the field reverse vaccinology. Um, and what reverse vaccinology means is what I've described, which is try to understand what is good in an immune response. And having done that, design a vaccine which will actually drive that particular okay, so that, so that, response. What, so a, a vaccine that actually kind of catalyzes that to happen, as it exactly. were. Exactly. Yeah, exactly okay. right. So prevention and cure. That's, that, that's, uh, uh, the, so, so, prevent, so in terms of the functional outputs, that would be... Um, I mean, what, what is desperately needed is a vaccine which protects against all four of those serotypes of dengue. And um, uh, until that comes, in my view, um, many of the other approaches I don't think will really um, influence the, the, the disease, which is you know, skyrocketing in terms of um, uh, how much there is. But you, but, but you think you you think you're close and that you can do it. I, I, I well, I hope I hope we can make some progress and and come up with a, a potential vaccine which we can test. Are you? What what what's really interesting to me is that you're a scientist and yet what you're doing here is is emotionally incredibly exciting to kind of improve the lives of hundreds of millions of people. I mean, when when you reflect on doing this job. Do, does it really what really excites you the science and the kind of the challenge and the analysis and the or is it just the idea that you actually re, I mean because not many people can say they're doing something that will genuinely profoundly change the world in a way that is you know much bigger than those kind of silicon valley oligarchs who are changing the world that we're all talking about all the time by you know making technology i mean this is a do, do you get excited by the human and emotional thing or is it for you is it really just the pure science bit that's engaging so that's an interesting question Charlie. i mean it's actually both i mean you know i love the science um i could survive without working on a on a, on an important disease but i think a lot of people as they get later on in their scientific careers actually want to make a difference yeah. Um, and, you know, particularly being a clinician, having seen this disease, if one could actually be, uh, you know, one could start something which changed, changed the way this disease is managed would be absolutely terrific. I mean, yeah, yeah. It would be yeah. a fantastic thing to be associated with. And, um, you know, that's very much the next step that we're trying to make in the lab, but also making that step through a series of uh, of stepping stones which remain scientifically challenging. Of course, of course. But I mean, it, it, it's, really, it's really interesting to me to embark on... I, I suppose it's the same as being an entrepreneur in some ways. You know, you started something 17 or 18 years ago with no real knowledge that you could make it work, just a belief that it was interesting and worth doing, I suppose. And so you don't ever get... You, you, when you look at that kind of window of 20 years, you... And you I think, to an extent, my God, that is just so far off. I'm not sure I could even cope with some not knowing because you might yet fail. Oh, look, um, most most um, medicines and vaccines don't work. Um, yeah, I mean that's why that that's why medicines are are and particularly the new the newer medicines are so expensive because you're paying. You're not just paying for the time it works, you're paying for all the times that it didn't work. And one of your jobs leading on from that is that you have to go out and presumably 
not single-handedly, but with your team, raise substantial sums of money in order to, to get this to work. That's right. And, and um, you know, I've been very lucky to be supported um, generously by, by a number of organisations, including the, the MRC and the Wellcome Trust. What's um, the MRC? Medical Research Council okay. and, and, and the Wellcome Trust um, and, and the uh, European Research Council. Um, so f- the, 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 um, the work itself has been, has been very well funded. The next step, which is um, further, further development, one, one, one looks actually towards pharma who, um, who might want to, to take a closer look. And, and of course, nowadays we tend to patent our findings and um, with a view to, to protecting them so that they, not just to try to make money, but to make sure that, that they can be exploited. Okay. Um, for the public good. Yes. Okay. Okay. So no, it, right. Right. Okay. And and that, what? So they explain a little bit to me about that process. The, the patenting. No. No. The way the notion that the common good is is as important as the patent and the. Um... Well, the common good meaning what I actually meant by that was that um, if you don't, uh, you know, patenting biological findings has, you know, has had some difficult press in the past but particularly over um over dna sequences um and so on but the point being that in order to commercialize something and something has to be commercialized if you want the public to get it it has the 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 company that produces the vaccine has to own it of course because if they don't own it they won't make it yeah, they wouldn't. So perversely, without intellectual property, rather, rather than freeing up the field to make more medicines, you'd actually paralyse the system. I understand no that, and it seems it to be often misunderstood in these discussions about the price of drugs. So you, um, you, you had a sort of um, an enforced um, professional diversion in that you had to look, start working on Zika when that became sort of... Um, the subject du jour a couple of years ago, didn't you? Because yeah. there, there are lots of similarities there. So how did that happen? There was this immediate, this very rapid sort of spread of this and, and it became a global crisis and you were almost sort of coerced into working with Zika. Yes. So, I mean, I, I think many people are pretty aware of, of the, the story around Zika. Um, it, was, it was a virus, um, or it is a virus, which is been around for a very long time. It was first discovered in the 1940s. Um, and, and, and preciously little um, was done with it because it was a, it was a phenomenon really which um, affected very few people. It was first found in Uganda and it caused, it, it caused a very mild illness. So it was occasionally diagnosed in, in travelers, but there was virtually no research on it because it was not a significant clinical problem. And then uh, and then there have been these big outbreaks um, spreading across the Pacific and then ending up in Brazil uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, and um, and that was at, wasn't that at the time of the um, World Cup? That was at the time of the World or was it Cup the, or Olympics. 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 In fact, I think the World Cup was the dengue was the concern. And for the Olympics, it was Zika. Um, and Zika's vicious, particularly for pregnant women. And Zika has turned out to be vicious and it causes two major problems um, one of which is in pregnant women where it can infect the uh, unborn baby 
uh, and can infect the brain and cause an absolutely horrific um, condition called microcephaly, which means small head, um, uh, which is a devastating thing. Um, so I went out to, to Recife in, in, in uh, February 2015. Check that. Yeah. Um, uh, to attend a conference, and it was absolutely dreadful. And it was be when it was first becoming clear that uh, Zika was cause causing not only a huge epidemic in Brazil, but this epidemic of microcephaly. And then the other thing it can cause is a thing called Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is which is a paralytic illness of of uh, not of the children, but of, of the people who who get the disease, which can also be extremely debilitating. So, so this became a, this big subject, and, and, and essentially someone called you and said you need to get out to this conference because well, we think you may have some useful findings from your work in dengue. That, that's, that's right, and, and the, the reason for that, of course, is that um, Zika viruses and dengue viruses are our are, are first cousins. Um, they're the same type of virus, and, and they're the most similar to each other. Okay. Um, so and they're transmitted by the same mosquito. So you were you were you 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 are heading the world's leading research into dengue. So it was just quite logical that as Zika was very much that's right on so, the rise, they had to get you involved. So that's right. And so a lot of people working on dengue um, uh, got involved in Zika. And there are a number of similarities in. Obviously, I've told you it's transmitted yeah. by the same mosquito. And there's also the issue um, we discussed at the very beginning about. Um, how with dengue a second infection can actually be worse than the first so since these viruses are quite similar to each other is it possible that dengue previous dengue infection can actually affect the way you deal with zika oh wow when okay. it comes along okay um and, and in rather the same way the antibody response to dengue cross reacts against zika and certainly in the laboratory can increase Zika infection. Um, so there's a possibility, as I say, that dengue could make Zika worse. There's the possibility, potentially, that dengue vaccines could interact with Zika, and vice versa. Could Zika vaccines interact with, with dengue? So Zika virus is not that much more different from dengue than the different dengue viruses are from each other. Oh, how interesting. Okay, and so you so you went and, and sort of shared your learnings, and, and, and where did they, where where's the global community got to on Zika? Um, well, there's been an enormous amount of research and an enormous amount of funding. Um, from our from our side, um, the really interesting thing was that those antibodies I told you about that can deal with all the different types of dengue are also um, some of the most potent against Zika, which is, was, was quite a surprise. So, you know, that raises the possibility again of vaccines which might even be able to deal with all five of those viruses um, if they could be made. Um, there have been a number of vaccine trials in, in animals and there are now some, some uh, vaccine trials going on in, in human volunteers. The real difficulty now with Zika is that the disease is, is, is rapidly going down. So how do we actually, in the future, go on and test these vaccines? What, what, what do you mean it's going down? I mean, the number of cases, so I mean, millions of cases in Brazil, but the number of new cases 
uh, has has gone right down, which is a good thing. Right. Um, so, you know, in 20 years' time, when there is a new population of uh, children and young adults who've never had uh, Zika before, there'll be a new population that can be infected. So there really is a need to develop a vaccine. So, so far, I think this has been amazing and fascinating. And I, talking to Gavin, although I've known him for about 35 years about what he's actually doing, is really extraordinary and quite moving. I think it's funny how we trundle through life with our friends and we often don't talk to them about their professional interests. Or maybe Gavin's just too modest, I don't know. But anyway, I wanted to try and find out a few other things about Gavin. So we started talking initially about his working life beyond research and then moved on to one or two of his other sometimes eccentric hobbies. Okay, so um, I just wanted to sort of talk a little bit about some some other things in your life. I mean, as well as your... Um, obviously, what strikes me as extraordinary is that you run this enormous department now at Imperial and presumably will at Oxford. How, how many researchers do you have working under you? I've got a lab with about... I mean, it flexes um, from time to time, depending on how many students we have there, but pro- probably around 10 people. Okay. Um, but, you know, what makes... But then you're also looking after the rest of the faculty. Yeah. And yeah. how many people are there in that? Oh, there's, there's several thousand. Um, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's big. We have. And you have to oversee that whole department. I have to, I have to uh, sort of nominally oversee it. I mean, clearly, it's, there's, there's a whole series of management structures within that. Yes. So how many, how many um, days a week, as it were, are you doing sort of admin and nominally looking after those people, and how many are you researching? I, I, I'd say I spend about two days researching and three days doing admin. And do you, do you like, I mean, do you find the, the admin bit rewarding or super stressful? I mean, it sounds like a huge organisation to manage. There must always be some grim HR there's, thing. The, 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 there's usually something going on, but there's also, it's also, you know, very fulfilling to be able to organise the research and the teaching in a, in a big organisation like Imperial and actually leave an imprint on it. But do you think you were born calm? Um... I mean, you're, you know, I know you're extraordinarily hardworking, but you're pretty laid back, and I guess that's probably a necessary skill. I think to run a big organisation, it, it helps to be calm. I'm not always calm, Charlie. You know that very well. Um, I think the, I mean, the other, the other important skill is to be able to deal with more, th- more than one thing at once, and I, you know, I, I would call that plate spinning. Does that just um, come naturally to you? I can do that quite. Well, I mean, I don't know how many plates I can keep up, um, but you have to be able to do that. Yes. Um, because uh, otherwise, and, and, and there, are, there are some really bright people who can't really do that too well. Um, they're often, you know, very, dis- they can be very, very distinguished scientists and, and, and they actually trade very much on their absolute extreme focus mm. on, 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 a, on a, you know, pretty well described um, target which is a luxury which is which is a luxury i think running a big organization you have to be able to 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 take on more more than one thing at once which 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 i can and 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 and, and you know to some extent you have to put them away when you go home do you and and do you i mean you're a very avid cyclist i mean does that kind of exercise stroke work thing help you hugely do you think i think you know, there's a lot. Of, a lot of people are, are, are really interested in that, in, in, and I think people increasingly, obviously, are, are, are talking about dealing with stress through exercise. 
Well, I'm no, I you know I love cycling, and um, in fact, it's about the only the only sport I can do nowadays because my back precludes me from doing from running or doing many other things. My pain in my back, but uh, you know, you're you're on the bike generally on your own for several hours, and it's a good time to to mull things. You so, can't you know, look at the phone. You you can't look at the phone. Um, you can you can think through a few issues. You yeah. can have a good look at the countryside, but also think through a couple of things that might be going on in the lab and a couple of things that might be going on in your life and a couple of things at work. So I mean, it's not time wasted and you get some, you get, you get the exercise in as well. So I think it's a, it's a great sport. The problem is finding the motivation to do it in the middle of winter when it's dark, wet. Yeah, I know. It's always amazed me that they have the London Marathon in April because well, exactly um, right. you and I both used to do that, but um, training well, in winter is not well, a we did thing. Well, we did used to do that, and I never used to do enough training, and it was extraordinarily painful. But you, you also rode in the boat race as well, didn't you? Is that what did your back in? I think it probably was, the training and so on. I think, yeah. uh, you didn't do it at the time, but I think that was probably where How the How many boat races done. did you row in? I rode, in uh, I rode for the second crew a couple of times in the boat race once in 1986. Do you win? No, we lost. I mean, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on. Let's move on, yeah. Um, <laughs> were you, I mean, it, it, it's interesting because um, you're very academic, but you're, you know, you also don't present as particularly academic in terms of your, you know, you're not, you're obviously a bit of a nerd, but you're not, you don't come across as a nerd. Were you very, very academic at school? Oh, God, no, 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 no. I, um... I was pretty slow starting. I, I um, just got into um, Magdalen College School. Um, was not expected to get. Um, uh, actually, I got the Progress Prize for my O levels when I got. I okay. Can't what I got? I got eight O levels, which was a lot less than many of the others around me. And and then um, I think I surprised everybody with my A level results, and 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 then surprised people even more when I got into Cambridge. So was so you. I think I kind of just woke up at school when I was about fourteen or fifteen and just figured out how to do it. It, it was exa well, I, exactly the same with me, Charlie. I think you know one suddenly realised that 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 academic uh, academic pursuit in some way some some ways was a game, and once you understand what the rules are and start playing it, you realise that that it's actually not very difficult at all. If you have the benefit of good teachers, if you got the benefit of good teachers, of course. And, and, and who, who, who give you really insight and inspiration, which, which I had, particularly my biology teacher. I mean, I, 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 you and I both share a mutual passion for going to um, antique and vintage markets, and particularly <laughs> Brocantes in France. And, you know, I'm always looking for things that I think look nice. And, and you're just simply in, interested in the function of things, aren't you? Well, it was interesting. I was, I was talking to Caroline last night. <laughs> I always sort of look down on the floor to the rusty tools. And you look onto the tabletops um, for, for, for the, the, the nice-looking things, and, um, which is good because we don't compete with each other for, for stuff so we can walk around together. Um, but I do miss a lot. But yes, I, the, the sort of practical things that, you know, I really enjoy. And, and, and you've got a massive museum of them at home, haven't you? I've, I've got a, a, a room stuffed full of different implements for doing you, all sorts of funny jobs and some, some of them I don't even know what they are. Really? I thought, I thought you would I had the sense you'd never buy something if you hadn't figured out what it was. Oh, no, 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 no. If, I, if, if it looks interesting and it's been made by a blacksmith... Um, You're I, having it. I will buy it because, <laughs> uh, 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 I mean, the fascination would be to try and work out what it does. Mm. 
but you don't necessarily get round to that. Well, I can't necessarily find anybody who knows what it is. No. no okay. But you, you might have quite an interesting kind of museum of British and French rural life going on there well, eventually. That, 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 that's where it's going. I've, uh, the trouble is I, I, um, I, I find it difficult to keep it all in the same place as it, some of it occasionally gets transported into my garage. And does your other half enjoy it as much as you do? She tolerates it. Okay, does she? Because <laughs> I can see Caroline. I mean, sometimes when I come home with things, and, and Caroline is incredibly supportive of my passion for it, I can see Caroline raising her eyebrows and, and wondering where it's going to go. Alison tolerates it, but as I said, occasionally boxes move from, from the front room into the garage. Oh, without your, without your knowledge? Well, they, they get put, put halfway down the corridor on their way towards the garage. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's absolutely fantastic. Thanks so much, Gavin. That's absolutely brilliant. So that's it. Thank you very much to Professor Gavin Screeton, or Gav as I know him, for a really interesting talk. I hope that you've enjoyed that and that you'll come back and listen to some more podcasts. But until then, thanks so much for listening and see you soon. Bye. Bye.